there's a prerequisite uh, for Dharma practice, uh, and that prerequisite uh, is um, is a a wanting to know what is true. That has to uh, compel us forward. It is becomes our motivation for wanting to see, to look. What's what's the truth in this? And we feel that there has been some distortion of perception. We feel like something's off a little bit. We're not sure what it is. We've lived our entire life within the uh, within the transfixed quality of that misperception, and we just we sense there's something off. And what comes through that allows us to um, to correct and and perceive what has been uh, wrong is our need to know, our need to know what is true. What is true? And many of us get driven by that uh, for our entire Dharma life. Because, as I mentioned uh, in the previous talk, uh, when you move from form to formlessness, you're moving from a misperception that misperception is how we perceive form and the sense of us being the perceiver, the subject, perceiving the object, me and you, this and that. And that has been uh, solidified in our consciousness through a lot of distortion. A lot of different conditions have arisen that we have, have conceded to and it has developed, we've developed a kind of of, uh, of mass agreement that we will look at the world in this way, kind of a consensus way that we'll view it and not ask too many questions about it and that we'll kind of move our way forward. But in order to hold the misperceptions of the world to what society believes them to be, it requires a lot of uh, of of missing the point, of not asking the right questions, of not being compelled to know the truth, but being willing to go along with the conditioned reference, the the consensus reality of life. And because it requires so much, it's not a one-time thing. You don't distort the truth and then it stays distorted. You have to constantly and continuously distort the truth in every second in order to rearrange life so that it's always appears the way we see it out of our eyes. And so it's, it's, it's an, there's a struggle involved in maintaining the world of misperception. And you can see that it ha- must have something to do with noise, our thinking, because our thinking never really stops. It's, it's an ongoing assertion of a reality through our thinking. As I mentioned, uh, in sleep, in meditation, when we want thought or not want thought, it's still thinking. We're still thinking. So there's an awful lot of energy, and that energy is tiresome on its own accord. It's, there's labor-intensive. Now, if that's the truth of misperception, if we get a sense that the way we perceive life, again, you there and me here, that's the misperception. The perception of separation is a misperception. 
then the perception of what is true must be very simple. Right? It must be just the relaxation of all the tension that we have created in order to make the world misperceived. Right? So the reverse process must be much simpler than the way we've sort of made everything distorted in order to keep it misaligned. So let us keep this very simple. And that's why all the words that we invite in your meditation practice have been very simple words. Relaxation. Observation. Allowance. Now, observation is an interesting one because if you want to know what is true, you've got to see it. (laughs) You've got to be willing to see it. You're not going to know unconsciously what is true. You've got to know consciously what is true. So observation is a key component. But these words like relaxation and acceptance that Narayan so nicely spoke about last night, or non-judgment, or just, just the sense of release and relaxing and allowing and just... I mean, you can feel the untangling quality of the words that we invite you into that don't contain a lot of willful effort or striving or or tension within those words. And yet, because we have misperceived the world continuously and only know the strategies from that misperception, and there are strategies, logics within that misperception, as I mentioned last time, and that we keep applying that same logic to those misperceptions to try to fix the misperceptions into unity. But if you apply the same logic and strategies for misperception, guess what you get at the end of that as a product? More misperception. So these are active. These are in, we are actively suggesting ways to correct this, if you so wish. And so the sense of formlessness, presence, must be very available. What if I did nothing? And there it is. There it is. It's so available. And the, but we come back out of it kind of jarred. We think, oh my, I've got to get back to the real world, the, the sane one. And whenever you light upon something, you'd, few of us realize what it takes to make what we light upon the something we think that thing is. Right? We, we just assume it's a glass of water. It takes extraordinary dis- entangled thinking and jumbled memories and pieced together mosaics to come up with glass of water. In fact, a neurologist on a PBS program, they were 
studying the question of who am I? And the neurologist said, well, there are a billion neurons, each carrying a piece of the mosaic of the complete picture or assumption of me. And they fire continuously, a billion neurons. He says, it's better to think of that there's a billion of you than one of you. There's a lot of activity in there just going on to keep the perceptions the way we have known them to be. And therefore, they're not hooked up to neurologic. The, the truth of life is not hooked to neurological firings, but to the silence from which those firing, firings occur. And that's very simple. But we don't necessarily, we want it to be complex. You know, it's like the frustration of the cosmologist who says, the universe is revealing its secrets too easily. You know, we want it to be more difficult. We want to kind of do penance in our spiritual practice to be worthy of the, of the holy sacred veil that's being drawn back and perceiving life in its wholeness. We, we want something, you know, a hundred thousand prostrations would be a good beginning. <laughs> and yet it's this close. It's this close. And what happens, sometimes it's very interesting to uh, some of us, Narayan and I talk about this a lot, is that sometimes uh, people, students, yogis who get involved in this have spent so much time working in the details ways that they think they need to work in order to come to this very simple, simple answer that, they, that the means of the meditation becomes the ends they seek. That they work for the sake of working. They don't, see that we're no longer at that point driven by what is true. What's the truth of this situation? We're driven by our own dynamics, our own psychology. It gives us a definition, meditation gives us a definition like any other project would do. We can become very proficient in it. We sit just a little higher than the person next to us. How many retreats have you done? Oh, only six. It's this simple. It's the unraveling of distortion. And so what you will continually see before your eyes when you really want to know what is true is all the distorted ways that we have coded reality to be. You'll never see the truth. You'll always see the falseness, the infusion of our deception. You always see how we've deceived ourselves. That's what you're going to see. From form to formlessness. And what's, 
really interesting is that many of you have experienced formlessness. You've had a moment in which there's the knowing of something more than yourself, much bigger than yourself. And even with that taste that often comes in random times, not after X number of weeks of meditating, but just randomly while you're walking the beach. There's an absolute certainty within that knowing. And then we try to apply the mechanics of our distorted way of perceiving so we can regain a foothold into that simplicity that happened by random occurrence. And so it's, we put distance between us. If you really want to know what is true, be quiet and look. That's it. So last time, we were looking at the system. You have to be careful of any systems. The Buddhist system for unraveling distortion to come to the preciousness of this simplicity. And he does this in a number of very skillful ways, realizing that the mind wants to be on a journey, needs to be engaged and look and have a whole sense of projects in front of itself in order to feel accomplished enough to resolve the problem and to see the simplicity of the truth. So he does this in a very skillful way. He says, let's look at the, one, at the truth that each of us believe we have with us, called the body, and the investment that we have placed in this very personalized expression of form. Let's begin here. Let's begin with this thing. Let's look at it. Let's just see what it is. And the first time we touch it, it begins to show us that it's much more than we thought it to be. When looked at it from an objective point of view, it looks very solid, it looks very, you know, outlined and distinct, and yet when we close our eyes and actually feel the expression of our body inwardly, it doesn't look like that at all. It looks very spacious. It's not held within the lines of our definition of our skin. And we realize that at points, at some points, we we are exploring this thing and we've dropped the idea of body and it no longer even holds that central to it. Now, we've covered that in the last talk, but I want to bring up a central point of the body that we didn't cover, which is very important. And that is when you enter the body, you, will, you are calling forth, you're releasing the past by entering the body. You're unlocking the ways that we have fixed the past within us. And there are many ways in the body that have been the tensions that we hold in the body, our past accumulation of, of resistance patterns, 
There are memories that are locked in the body. There are emotions that are locked in there. And so when we enter the body, you can expect the past to come out from that entry. It begins to release itself. We're no longer pushing more past into the body. We're releasing the past that's there. So many of us get very troubled when we enter the body because a lot of emotions start percolating up. We get lost in memories that seem to transfix us or, or parts of the body that have been injured in the amount of emotional turmoil or volatility that that injury caused us continues to spill forth. So to learn how to work with the past in the present is very much the a component part of being embodied or re-entering the body. And that's very important, which you'll see in a minute or two, because we're continually having to work with the past every time we're in the present. The present moment, what erupts into the present moment is our past accumulated strategies and beliefs and desires and patterns of mind and mental state, all of that, right? The sanskaras, it's called in Buddhism, the conditioned tendencies of the past arising in the present. And because we're used to feeling the feelings that are arising and then just moving off into thought from those feelings, kind of just slapping the tail of of the horse and getting it trotting again, we we aren't we haven't learned how to be present. <laughs> we haven't learned how to be present with the body and just to let it let it come out without sort of following up with the next self-recriminating response we have for what's occurring now and oh yes, oh I remember how awful I was in that and the memory of that and oh the shame, oh my god, what am I gonna the lack of forgiveness becomes obvious in our life. But it's all coming through the present. The body holds the past, but more importantly, it holds the now. Because that's where it's expressing itself. The mind goes off from the body, but the body never leaves the mind. The body's always a standard of the present moment. It's right here. And though it's releasing the past, it's releasing the past in the present. Through the present. And if we just don't let the past take us over and move with the past in, as if it were real, we could see the past coming through the present and just release it like heat off of a griddle. Let it come right out. Just let it come right out. Who cares? So that's an important point. As we move into the second foundation, it's important to remember that we have started unpackaging this condensed sense of me and my personal attachments and my personal identity. We begin to unwrap the boundaries that we have assumed in life through having investigated and really gone into the body sufficiently so that we see that that boundaries are conceptual models that we place upon things that are limitless, objects that are limitless. And that's, that's, that's an accumulation. Of, that's the beginning of seeing how we have distorted things. Now, but often, even though uh, in the body you begin to sense the, the sense of self coming out of the body, 
in mind, that it's not something that's intrinsic to the body or mind or something that's separate from the body or mind, but somehow that it's a component part of the body and mind and is being a part, it's like the past that comes out of the body and mind. So too does a sense of self feel like it's coming out of the body and mind as well. Just sense it. Where do you think you're coming from? How can you be back there somewhere? You're right here, coming out of it, just like the past is coming out of it. <clears throat> so then you get curious, or I hope you get curious. That is, if you want to know what is true, you get curious. And if you get curious, you begin to think, OK, so how does this thing form itself? How does the fat past replicate itself in the present? How does that happen? How does this whole thing get, get going? What's the food that it gathers around all these conditions that create the sense of me within this body? Because the sense of me is the misperception that allows me to see things distant from me. If I can solve that problem, I can solve the basic a distortion of perception that is, that is my, my normal way of looking. It's what the eyes see when I open my eyes. I see you and I see them and I see me. How does that work? If it's misperceived, I should be able to see the distorting qualities or how, that's, how that occurs. And then the Buddha very skillfully takes us into the second foundation of mindfulness. Here, he uses the word Vedana, or feelings. Feelings are not emotions. Feelings, in this case, are, are attractions or aversions or something that you completely disregard. So feelings are a tendency or a pleasant tendency that you are attracted to or an, a, a, an unpleasant tendency that you're aversive to or a neutral quality that you don't care about at all, you don't even want to see. Now, these feelings are, accompany every experience we have. They are conditioned tendencies in us placed upon experiences. Because we've learned we like apples or we don't like apples, and when we see an apple, a pleasant feeling arises or an unpleasant feeling arises, or maybe we don't care about apples. All right? Okay, so this is the seed for everything to grow around. It's a little bit, if you were a child like I was, sometimes you would supersaturate a solution with sugar. By heating up the solution, you'd stir a lot of sugar in there, and then you put a string down there and cool it down, and crystals of sugar candy would gather around the string. So these Vedanas, these feelings, are a little bit like that string that you put down into supersaturated solution. As we cool down, a lot of conditions gather around that string, producing the rock-hard feeling. That's for emphasis. <laughs> that I am present. I am here. It's very interesting. When I was an undergraduate, psychology undergraduate, the... Uh, as a, they would have us do a lot of experiments, as we were subjects in an experiments. And I remember, you know, they had us do this great, uh, I think it was called an MPI or something, some big test, psychological thing, 
that showed whether you just showed your whole mental profile, I guess. And mine must have showed that I was afraid of snakes because they kept running me through experiments that had to do with snakes. <laughs> so this one experiment, they put this big microphone to my heart that was a fake microphone, but I didn't know. They taped it to my heart here. And uh, you know, I, I don't particularly care about snakes, but I'm not afraid of pictures of snakes. So they put this microphone to me, and they start showing me slides of snakes. And, I, and then they said, they, you, now listen carefully, you can hear your heartbeat. And then they, over the loudspeaker, they had my heart beating. And as they would show me snakes, my heart was going boom, 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 like that. And I thought, I'm not afraid. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and believe it or not, I started, well, I must be afraid. Right? I convinced myself I must be afraid because my heart's beating fast. And so then, I, so then on, a, on an exit thing, I'm very afraid of snakes. Well, pictures of snakes. I'm not afraid of snakes. But <laughs> so somehow I convinced myself, just through the sound of my heart beating, that there was a disturbance going on. I didn't feel the disturbance. You see? It was a... I suddenly, my Vedana, my feelings changed in regard to seeing snakes because I was hearing my physiological system sound as if it were afraid of it. And so then I became afraid of the pictures of snakes where I hadn't been before. So that's how, it's very weird. So these Vedanas are very interesting because so, so we have the piece of string in the in the solution that's supersaturated and beginning to crystallize out rock. So, what does that mean in terms of the action? So, around these vedanas, this in the experience you have, you're attracted to it, or you're not attracted to it, or you don't care about it. So, in that leaning, what comes in with that leaning? Let's say towards something. First of all, the recognition of what it is that you're leaning towards. And then your emotional response towards what that thing is. And then the memories associated with that emotional response. See, these are all ingredients. These are all neurons firing. Remember, there are a billion of them. (laughs) And suddenly you have this big idea in your mind from all the neurons firing from past, from the past, in the present, about a whole conjecture to the experience you're now having. It's now been laced with the past. The past is being formed in the present moment based upon the neurological response of memory, which also is coming in the present moment, but seems as if it's a memory from the past. The neurons are firing present tense. They just carry the messages of old feeling tones inside of them and images associated with those feeling tones. So now we're getting a sense of how the sense of me, because when there is sufficient threshold in the number of those firings, 
and a picture has been presented that we now have a reaction to or an attraction for, there has to be someone into which we place all that memory body called me. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember. We don't say our neurons are remembering. Oh, I remember. But the sense of I is also a mental firing of those neurons. It's the summation of all those firings forms a sense of me having had that experience I'm experiencing now. There isn't a me in there. It's just the confluence of all that firing. Isn't that interesting? Do you want to know what's true? And it's the weight of all that firing that convinces me that I'm here. Because along with the firing comes, and this is a key point, comes a narrative associated with it that ties all that firing together. It ties all that firing together and all of the memories associated with the previous firings together. So now, I have a story that is accompanying the experience I'm having. And as soon as you've decided that you've had that experience before, you have the accompanying emotional impact that that experience carries. The previous conditioning, emotional previous conditioning of that experience. And so now you start having an emotion, a conviction, and an opinionation, because out of all of that firing, memory, narrative, story, and positionality comes a conviction, an opinion about what, you're, what the firing is. Oh, I don't like her. I never did. <laughs> and you can... Now, I want to put this in reach. You can go to the firing, you can go to the feelings, you can feel the feelings. Feelings, feel, they form a fixed representation, a fixed idea about something. They fix it in mind. The neurons are firing, it's a conditioned fixation, but it feels the fixed response, the idea and opinion I have of it, feels very assured. Oh, I know that. You see? But it's all fluid. It's all verb. There's no noun in there. It's all motion. The motion of this made me lean towards it. And when I leaned towards it, memories, with the memories came a narrative, with the narrative came the the emotional response to that narrative, then can they fix opinions about it, on and on. All very, very rapid, very sequential. You can, a billion in an instant. And because it's so quick, we don't, we don't see the component parts. But you can experience the component parts. And if you are willing just to hold the feeling without moving to the next sequence, just hold the feeling as a feeling. 
and it doesn't move to the next sequence. See, it can be arrested because the basis of its movement is that we don't see. It moves because we have decided we don't want to look. We don't want to see at that level. We don't want to see who, what this thing really is. We don't have a compelling need to know the truth. And so we just let it fire and just go on with whatever it's telling us is the nature of the reality in front of us and avoid that and go towards that and disregard that and just keep going. And that's what our life looks like. And that's how we convince ourselves to stay distorted. Because the patterns are there, all we have to do is let ourselves follow the patterns. Just move with what our conditioning says about us. But that, in essence, is how we're constructed. And it can be seen. You can, go, you can enter in whatever direction you want. You can enter at the Vedna, the feeling tone. And when you do so, what you do is you break apart the, the assumption of self within that. And because if you remove a single link, it all falls to stillness. It doesn't move to the next link. So if you're willing just to be present to the feeling tone, and not let it move because it has to move with your, in your ignorance, not in your vigilance. So if we are aware of the feeling tone, it doesn't move. And what comes in when we don't move? The undistorted reality. The undistorted truth. Which most of us bypass. Is a moment of quiet. <laughs> I had a moment of quiet. How was your meditation? I had a moment of quiet. <laughs> what was really interesting, though, was all. <laughs> now we're going to move to the third foundation. It gets interesting, more interesting to me. It gets more interesting. I'm going very quickly, of course. So the Buddha then says, okay, since movement is the basis, your movement, your conceding the point, your thinking, your constant referencing, your states of mind, everything, all of this jumbled confusion in there is the point of your reference, of your referencing, and the past's influencing your referencing, so it's confusing the present to the past influences, and you're being lost in that, and you're, the way you defined yourself has always to do with the past, because the past is coming into the present, and you're just conceding that picture, that image, as yourself going forward. He says, okay, if that's the case, let's move this thing a step further. Let's call this the third foundation of mindfulness in which you add nothing to your mind. The mind is completely left uninfluenced. No movement whatsoever. No count, no one preference per, uh, way of the mind being as opposed to another. 
No preferenced way for the mind. No counterbalancing whatever arises. Oh my God, I've, I'm anger. I've got to enter, have offset it with metta. No counterbalancing. Let it be exactly the way it is. If the mind is concentrated, fine. If it's not concentrated, fine. He does not say always have a concentrated mind. If it's discursive, fine. If it's confused, fine. If it's calm, fine. If it's irritable, fine. Add nothing, no leverage. Nothing. So there's no movement whatsoever. Now you have taken yourself out of the mind. In fact, if you arise, you are seen as a mental phenomenon. Because the sense of you is developed from the movement, from the objection, from the resistance, from the not wanting this or wanting that, from the vedna, from the feelings. That's where you arise. If you take the movement out of the mind, you're out of the mind. You're out of your mind. (laughs) Now there is just mental phenomena. You see how he's doing this? He's showing us the personalization, the boundaries we formed within the personal the identifying fact within the body. Then he's showing us how that forms, how that creates the sense of me within that identified pattern. And then he's saying, okay, let's arrest the movement that has created you from the second foundation. Let us see what exists when the mind, when nothing is done with the mind, when there is no influence that is born upon the mind whatsoever. This way, That way doesn't matter. And since there is no resistance, there's just stillness. It's the resistance, the not wanting, or the wanting, that creates the division that makes us perceive as if we're after something that is not already being given. Well, if you look at wanting, the wanting is a movement. You're being given something, an experience. And the mind then, because of Vedna, it doesn't like it. It wants something else. So it's creating the alternative within its own thinking and then pursues the alternative at the expense of the reality that is being presented. No wonder we feel fractured. No wonder we feel separate. No wonder we feel at odds with reality. But when there is no resistance, then there's no movement. And there is just reality and no one to receive it. This isn't far off. This isn't after 20 years of meditating. This is, do I want to know this or not? The secret will be revealed. The secrets of the universe will be revealed if you want to know them.
And anytime you dispel the influences of the distortion, we are left in stillness. And that upsets us because it feels too big. We feel that we're going to lose our defining edge within stillness. And so we come back and talk about it. That was a moment of stillness. That was pretty good. Wasn't was that interesting? Did you have one too? That was, uh, I bet mine was longer than yours. <laughs> that puts us back into position, doesn't it? That gives us, now we've had the experience of stillness, but not the impact of stillness, not the realization of stillness. Not the living reality of stillness. Not the embodiment of stillness. And what we begin to realize when we don't do anything to the presentation of mind, we don't stake a claim of an other or reality outside of the, what is being presented, that there's no disagreement whatsoever with the presentation, third foundation, then what, it's not the form that we begin to notice, but the seeing of the form that which sees the form becomes much more predominant and much more experienced than the form that is perceived. So the question becomes, what is looking out of our eyes? Not what do we see when we look out of our eyes, but what is looking out of our eyes? If you want a straight path to the simplicity of reality, it's in the seeing not in the movement, not in the form that it sees. To ask, what is seeing out of my eyes in this moment? Just get a sense of it right now as we're speaking. What is seeing out of, not what am I looking at? You get quiet, don't you? Because you need form, we need form in order to converse. To have a relationship, we need form. Oh, that book, that thing, I know what that is. But when you're interested and focused on the scene, there's no conversation. And now we're beginning to find our way out. In each of the foundations, there's a door out. There's a door through. Because of the proximity of truth, the simplicity of truth, it's not hard. What holds us in check to come back to form, as I mentioned, is that we like the conversation because we get formed within that conversation. And so we stay conversing in order to be formed and miss the seeing of that form. We don't care about the seeing of the form. It's always there.
We care about what we see so we can converse with it, so we can have a relationship with it, so it can define me in its presentation and be defined by my mind as an object that I'm after. Because we define the object as well from our memory. Remember the Vedana came from us, it didn't come from the object. The Vedana, the feeling, was intrinsic upon the conditioning I had in the past with that particular object. And so the whole world gets set going from my internal response about it. Isn't that amazing? It's coming from here. And we think, my God, you know, when you see it, you just can't believe how involved and intricate it, is all, it all is and how elaborate the hoax. <laughs> but we have to be compelled to know what is true. So on to the fourth foundation, which next time. (laughs) Can we sit quietly for a minute or two? You feel the the sense of presence. See, something else comes out when we're not squeezing our identity into form. Something else comes out alive and vital. Not in some things and not in others, but in all things. Is there any more joyful work than this? Isn't it amazing?
You enter a mystery that is just unbelievable. It beats Agatha Christie. <laughs> Enjoy yourself within this mystery. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.